Well, y'all, uh, today is a, is a different kind of situation because I decided, uh, Anna asked me, what's the title of your message? And I'm just going to lie a little bit and, and, and tell you I don't have a title for this message except the circle of life. That would be, if I was going to tell you what I'm going to talk to you about today, is actually the circle of life. You see, how many of you have ever heard somebody misquote Scripture in your days? Nobody. Everybody says it correctly. Anybody ever heard that, I don't know why you're so worried. God said that He won't give you more than you can bear. That's a lie. That's not even Scripture. That's a lie. That is a lie. What the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you. Understand? You hearing me? No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Are you hearing this? You're only going to be tempted what's normal. For any man. Right? It says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. All right? This is temptation. It says, but when you are tempted, he will provide you a way out. Understand? So here's the thing. When we misquote stuff... We give people a false sense of who we are. God won't put anything on you you can't bear. Do you know that Paul actually... <coughs> what's my next scripture? 2 Corinthians. Paul says this. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. So that we, what's it say? Despaired all of life. In other words, we were so under pressure, so under everything, we wanted to die. Worried unto death. Do you not get this? You see, things were too much for him to bear July 12th is the beginning of the story where I couldn't bear. July 12th, 2005. We had just come home from Cabo San Lucas. No, we were from, uh, yeah, Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. We had been down there for 10 days uh, celebrating my daughter's graduation. We came home, planted some sunflower seeds with me and my son. He was five. And he wanted to plant them. So he had his little Tonka Troy truck and he was pushing dirt and covering seeds. The next day, he went to daycare. I was at a business meeting 
And I got a phone call. Mr. Spears, you need to come pick your son up. Um, he says he has a headache and he's crying uncontrollably. I said, no problem. I told my business associates, hey, I have to go check on my son. So me and my secretary took off. We got to the school and I couldn't find him. And I said, what's going on? And Oh, Felicia Verdia has him. He's in the back room. So I walk into the back room and it's completely dark and she's sitting with my son in, his, in her arms singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. She goes, I'm sorry, Pastor, that's the only song I know. And I said, it's all right. So I pick him up and he ragdolls. You know what that is, right? When they're completely limp. There's absolutely no response, no holding their self tight, nothing, just ragdolls. I went, wow, he really is asleep. So I went out, my, my secretary, Angie, she got in the back seat and I laid Stephen across and she put his head on her lap and we were going to drive to the office and let him sleep it off at the office. On the way there, my son started vomiting without coming conscious. And I thought, that's weird. She, you know, she had a hard hat in the back seat. I was a contractor. And I stopped and put the hard hat in the back of the truck and we drove to the office. I still intended fully to let him sleep it off in the in the office we get to my office and i reach in to grab my son and as i grab him and i pull him out he stiffens up like a board and has a seizure in my arms i didn't know what else to do so i yelled at my secretary you run in and call the hospital tell them i'll be the guy doing 90 into the ambulance place with a non-responsive child I drove into the ambulance place. They were already outside with a gurney. They grabbed him and they pulled him and they took him inside. Now, my wife and my daughter were on their way to Modesto, California. So they were almost an hour and a half away when I called and said something's not right. So I walked into the exam room and now I'm still not understanding the gravity of the situation. You have to understand at this time I was still pretty frightful. And my son was a cowboy, so he had brand new boots, brand new jeans, a brand new bus popper shirt, and a cowboy hat. That was, was his daily, that's his everything. Well, the nurse came in with a pair of scissors and started to go for his boots. I went, whoa! Those are $100 boots. I'll take them off. I told his boots off, and then she started to go with his, but no! I just paid $52 for those cinch jeans. Don't you touch those I done, did he? Don't touch his shirt, please. I stripped him down to his chonies and they whisked him out of there. And I thought, that was weird. So I walked outside because they took him back to do a scan. And I called my wife and my daughter was driving, which was a mistake. But my, I called my wife and I said, I don't know where you are, but turn around. If you want to see your son alive, something's bad. As I was standing outside with my wife on the phone, three, three nurses and a doctor come walking out a back door of the hospital completely in tears. And the doctor sees me and he goes, he walks up, Mr. Spears, it's bad. We can't see your son's brain. He's got such a massive bleed in his brain. When we did a CT scan, his entire skull showed up black. There's nothing we can do here. We're going to try to metaflight him to Valley Children's Center. And I'm like, cool, whatever, you know, let's get it done. 
But they didn't realize because of the trauma in his head, they couldn't move him to the helipad because the hospital we were at didn't have a place for the helicopter to land. So they had to wait for a trauma team to come from Valley Children's Center to, for, to, to Tulare. So there was an hour. By this time, my wife and my daughter beat them. This was the not smart part about my daughter driving. That she found out that a Mitsubishi Galant can actually do 140 miles an hour. <laughs> they pulled in just as they were trauma team had gotten there and they were wheeling my son out into the trauma machine to take him to a helicopter to fly him up. And then I, they were like, we can't do it. We're just going to take him back. We're going to take him in the trauma. He's too deep. We're not even going to put him on a plane. So we, I like, baby, we got to go. We got to go because they're going to be doing 100 mile an hour and I can't do that because I'm not my daughter and I, don't, I have a good driving record and I'm going right now. So we take off and we get all the way to Selma, which is almost 35, 40 miles away. No ambulance. And I went, oh, baby. They made me sign he was going to die on the way. He died, and they don't have a way to get... I didn't give my cell phone number. We've got to turn around. So I put on the blinker, and I started to get out of the fast lane to move over, and I seen little flashing lights in the corner. And I went, here he comes. That time, my dad called me. He was already sitting with 20 of our family members at, at Valley Chandler and waiting for us to show up there. And I'm talking to my dad. He goes, son, tell me what's going on. I said, dad, it's not good. They tell me it's not good. They said, I, I had to sign, Dad, that he's not going to survive the trip to Valley Children's Center. And the, the, the ambulance comes up. We pull in behind him. The lights go off. And they go from 90 miles an hour to 55 miles an hour. And I'm on the phone with my dad. And I'm like, Dad, he died. He just died. And I lose it. I'm driving my truck and I'm hitting the steering wheel and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, cowboy, fight for me. I need to see your eyes, son. I need to tell you one more time I love you. Do not leave me. Don't go. God, if you hear me right now, I need my son. And the lights came back on. And they picked up speed. And I'm falling, and I'm like, Daddy, the light's on. He's still fighting. He's still fighting. And we get almost to, to Highway 41, and the lights go off. And they slow down, and I'm screaming again, God, please, please don't take my son. Please let me tell him one more time that I love him. Give me that moment. And the lights come back on. My son died three times, and they got him back on the way to Valley Children's Center. We go into Valley Children's Center. They push us back into a room and my son is laying there in a coma. We anoint him with oil and me and my father pray over my son and I said, in the name of Jesus right now and I walk out. I didn't know what else to say. Ever been to the point where you're so deep you can't even pray for yourself? I just said, in the name of Jesus. I didn't know what else to do. And I walked out. I walk out and there's 20 of my family. And we, get, we, get, we go down because none of us have ate. And, and it's like, let's just go to the cafeteria. So we go to the cafeteria. 45 minutes later, 
two guys come in in blue scrubs. Spears. I said, yes, yeah, me. And they said, upstairs now. I figured that was it. They're taking me upstairs to tell me my son is gone. They pull me into a computer room. It was like maybe six foot by six foot, me and my wife, and this doctor comes in, Dr. Woodward, and she walks in and she goes, I've looked at the pictures. Your son's not going to survive this. All I'm able to do is try to ease him into his next life. I need you to sign here that you understand your son is brain dead. There's nothing we can do. And after that, I heard, the Snoopy teacher showed up, right? Because it didn't matter. You just made me sign that I understand I'll never be able to see my son again. I'll never be able to look him in his eyes. I'll never be able to tell him how much he meant to me. Nothing else mattered. We walked into the hallway and everybody had came up from the cafeteria. So there was 20 of my family members, some of them that don't know Christ, standing in the hallway. And my dad had to tell me what I did. I don't, I don't really remember because I believe the Holy Spirit took over. But I walked out and I said, my, my family has been raised and I've been taught my entire life that when things are too much for me to bear, that I thank God for what he's given me and I turn everything over to him. So I'm going to pray right now. And if you want to, you can pray also. And if you don't, I don't care. This is what I do. And the prayer my dad said I prayed, which like I said, was above me because I'm not that smart of a fella, was God, if you need to take my son right now to ensure that he spends eternity in heaven, Thank you for the best five years of my life. Because he is my important part. But if you don't need that right now, if that's not what has to happen, then I want a miracle that comes from your hand that nobody can deny you are God in this situation. Either way, you're my savior. I'm going to serve you until you take me home. But that's my prayer. I turn my son over to you. And I just turned around and walked away. I didn't know what else to do. Seven hours later, they come and find us in a, in a waiting room and they say, we need you to come upstairs. And I go upstairs and they're like, we don't know how this boy is still alive. But there's AVMs, which is a, a rat nest of veins that grow around arteries. There's one at the base of his brain we can't reach. We don't have the tools. So we're going to medify him from here to San Francisco to where they're going to finish this surgery. And Brandy and Mark were getting ready to, to, to clock out the two the, uh, trauma uh, people that brought him from Tulare there. And they heard... And they said, oh, we can't fly him in because San Francisco's fogged in. We're going to have to wait for a trauma team. And they went, nope, we're taking the boy. And they loaded him up and we took off. 
And do you know, we got almost 30 minutes away and I looked at my wife. Baby, they didn't make me sign he was going to die on the way to San Francisco. And all of a sudden, there was a joy that came into my heart. Because I thought, hope. How many of you know hope? Hope can bring a lot of stuff to fruition. If you have hope of getting better, do you know that you actually will believe and start fighting for it? If they take your hope away, you give in and go. So I had hope. And then, because this was back in the day, you got to remember this was 16 years ago. We didn't have Google Maps. We had MapQuest. And you printed it out. And I got lost in downtown San Francisco at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I got this, there was a street cop writing tickets. And I stopped him and I said, listen, I'm trying to find UCSF. My son is dying. And the guy goes, follow me. Turns these lights on, dude. We're doing like Starsky and Hutch. We were, ah! Right? Duke's a hazard in two San Francisco. We's going to get there, right? I get there. Don't get to see him. They take him in. They do five more procedures that night. Now, you don't think that a little country boy would have any pool in San Francisco. But see, God has pool everywhere. See, what happened was... One of my best friends that I grew up with, Greg Fiveash, worked for a company, and I had no idea, worked for a company that made neurological tools for brain surgeries. And he brought in a plate full of experimental stuff that hadn't been put in a person yet and said, Doctor, use whatever is on here. Save that boy. He is my best friend's son. They ended up putting three experimental parts in his head. But when he came out in a coma, can you imagine when you walk into a room and your six-year-old son sitting there with a bandage the size of a football on the side of his head, completely black and blue all the way across his face, Tubes going in his nose, out of his mouth, out of every orifice. They had tubes. They had pick lines everywhere. There was a wall of machines with pumping, squeezing, doing, juice dripping, all this stuff. And they told me, he'll never come out. We've never had a recovery. And I'll never forget, Dr. Gupa was his name. I put him up by his shirt collar and I put him up against the wall and I said, if you ever say anything negative in front of that boy or my wife again, I promise you, you'll be in the room next door. I don't want negative anything said in front of my son. Jesus Christ is in this room and until you understand that, we don't talk. He goes, he's dead he doesn't understand. 
That doctor never was invited back into that room, by the way. My son was in a coma. When he came out of the coma weeks later, he was completely paralyzed on the right side. Eye was fixed. No speech. Couldn't move. Now, UCSF's a training hospital, y'all. That means when a doctor comes through, they have four more doctors in tow. So there was a doctor, Amy Paltrow, she came in, and she had a needle, and she would poke his arm, or she would poke his foot, or she would poke his hand, and then the other four would poke. Now, I happen to know my son. Y'all, th- I give him a lot of grief, and, and you'll understand why in a moment. But I understand my son enough to where we have a nonverbal communication. And I seen in his left eye, my son was getting upset. He couldn't vocalize it. He couldn't say it. He couldn't show it. He was paralyzed and couldn't do anything about it. But he was getting angry. So Amy Paltrow came one day. And now we're in this, we we didn't know it at the time, that we, we were in the death room. A death room in pediatric ICU is where they put you in a corner away from everybody else to where when your child dies and you go into mourning, it doesn't affect other families. They put us in the death room, and that's where we stayed until we left because they didn't have any faith that he would ever walk out of that room or move out of that room. He was going to die there. Uh, Amy came. And there's a big eight-foot glass door. That's what we had in front of us. And Amy came in, and I said, stop. I said, you guys are making him mad. Can you tell me what your goal is here? You already done know he's paralyzed. Why are you poking him with needles? Sir, we've got to try to create a response. And I happened to notice there were four pretty girls with Amy. I said, could you give me a moment with my boy? And she said, sure. So I shut the door. I walk over to Steve and I said, hey, bub. He goes, uh. He hates this part. I said, uh, see all them pretty girls out there? You go, I said, they heard you're a real cowboy, son. And cowboys are tough. I said, so what I want you to do, he's laying in the bed, right? And his hand's like this. And I said, what I want you to do, I put my hand about like here. And I said, I'm going to put my hand right there, Stephen. And I said, I want you, don't look at, don't look at me or your hand. I want you looking at them girls. And I'm going to count to three, and I want you to give me a high five. And then watch what happens. You ready? One, two, three. I look. He touches my hand. They started hugging and jumping and high-fiving. And ah! I was waiting for, he was like so excited. And Amy Paltrow came in and she goes, listen, I don't know how, but you have a connection with that boy I've never seen. I'm just going to come from now on. I'm going to tell you what I need. You make it happen. The boy that was never going to recover would never walk again, never talk again, never do anything again. Two weeks later, took his fourth step 
he stood up at the door, and I sat on the bed. And I said, if you're a real man, you're a real cowboy, Haas, you're going to make it all the way to this bed. Because you ain't going to make it here. You're going to sleep on the floor tonight. If you can't make it to this bed, you're sleeping on that concrete floor. You understand me? And he looks at me and goes, really? Really? And he gets up, shuffles that leg, looks at me, takes a step, goes, I'm going to bed. Put his other foot up. Four steps. When they were going to release us, they told us, we're going to let you out of the hospital and you're going to take him by ambulance to Valley Children's where they're going to have occupational say, uh, health, uh, oc- therapy. Thank you. Occupational therapy, work with him for a year. So my mom and dad had took an RV down, parked it in the parking lot to where a week and my wife could be there during the day while I ran the construction business and I would come home and she would go home and take care of herself and get some sleep and we were going to be with him 24 hours a day. We were going to live right there for a year. We were ready to give up our property and everything and we get ready to go and the lady says, all right, just sign here and take him home. And I said, no, you mean take him to Valley Children's Center? And they said, no, you've done more with him sitting here than they'll do with him in in a lifetime. And the gravity of the situation hit me. God has given me a miracle and now as a father my responsibility was to raise him to be able to do whatever God put in front of him to where he would fulfill the reason he was saved. Oh, I'm not ready for that one. I wasn't ready for me to understand that he wasn't just a kid. He was a miracle kid. He wasn't just a miracle kid. He was the only miracle kid. He wasn't only the only miracle kid. This is not cool. They're sending me home. I don't know how to do this. I can build a house without a blueprint. I've been doing it for 30 years. This is crazy. And now, what am I going to do? They, 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 his brain plate was floating. They couldn't attach it because he was so young. He was still growing. And they're like, we can't attach it. You've got to put him in a helmet. You cannot have anything hit him. I'm like, I will not put my son in a rookie retard helmet. Will not happen. We're just, so I went home, took my bed frame out, put the mattress on the boy, slid it up against the wall, piled pillows all the way up around it and told my daughter, you're sleeping on the outside to where he don't roll off. Don't let nothing touch his head. My son's laying in bed, looks at his sister. Sister, sing me my song. What, brother? My song. What song is that? The one you sang while I was sleeping in the hospital. And she goes, brother, you, you weren't sleeping. You were in a coma. And he goes, you know, I fall down. I lay my crown. And my daughter just welled up with tears. She goes, daddy, when I would stay with him overnight, I didn't know any other Christian songs and I just knew that one. We fall down, we lay our crown at the feet of Jesus. I sang that to him every night. 
And she goes, that one? He goes, yeah. You got a pretty voice when you sing to Jesus. He likes that. And she goes, that's crazy. And then Stephen looks at his sister and says, when's Jesus coming back, sister? She goes, brother, nobody knows that. And he goes, I'm not talking about a night in the thief thing. And she goes, then what are you talking about? Well, sister, when I was sleeping in the hospital, Jesus told me he was going to have to come back later because he wasn't done fixing my calculator. The next week, we got a phone call. They found another ABM at the base of my son's brain. On our 20th wedding anniversary, they actually went back in, had to go right in the same scar, take the brain plate back out. This time, they had to remove the front left lobe to get to the base. They took the AVM, corrected the AVM, put it back together. And doctor, it, it was supposed to be a six-hour surgery. It ended up being an 11-hour surgery. When we, uh, Dr. Perry came out to the waiting room, he goes, Jeff, listen. <laughs> I, I, I was just as amazed, and I know your faith. This is different. You're not going to get the same result you got last time. I said, well, Doc, let's go see what Jesus did. We already heard what you did. We walk in, and Stephen's coming out of anesthesia, and he looks at me, and I said, what's up, bud? He goes, not much, Dad. My butt itches really bad, and my throat hurts. Dr. Perry, can I get a 7-Up? And Dr. Perry goes, I need Jesus. (laughs) You understand? Sometimes we got to understand when we're not looking for the healing and we're looking for the healer, things happen. I brought my son home. And I'm going to brag a little bit now, okay? I had a ranch uh, and I used to take cowboys off the street uh, who lived in uh, undesirable homes. Teach them how to cowboy get them through high school, and then they'd move out. My son wanted to be a cowboy so bad. I told him, well, son, you know, cowboys know how to rope. So I bought him a chicken rope. If you don't know what that is, it's a little bitty rope that you could actually rope a chicken with, but it's little and it's skinny, and he couldn't get his arm because it was paralyzed. He beat welts all the way up his arm, his neck, and on his side of his head until one day he come in and goes, Dad, look, and that rope just... I said, well, that's awesome, son. Cowboys wear hats. Swap! I still had the hat. We called it floppy because it was beat to death. A felt hat that you pick up and it just goes. Because he beat it to death. But he put that hat on and he came in and he goes, Dad, check this out. I go, all right. He goes, now I can rope. I said, no, son, your leg don't work. So I throwed him on sheep. Called it mutton busting is what they called it. So he started practicing. I bought sheep at the house. We had him ride sheep every other day. If he finished his work, did all of his stuff, learned his grammar back because he lost everything. Everything that the boy knows he learned from his ignorant father. And a few teachers helped. But they didn't know what to do. 
So when I took him to school, God told me, he said, my wife's like, what are you going to tell these kids? Because he can't go to the playground. If anybody hits him in the head, it kills him. What are you going to tell these kids? And I didn't know. And we were on the way, and I said, stop at Doc's Corner, which is a liquor store on the corner. And, I, and she stopped, and I walked in. I come back out, and I started praying. She drove me to school. I get out, and we get in there, and I said, hey, y'all. I said, you know, Stephen had an issue. I said, he had, to, he had a problem with his head. I said, see this deck of cards? This is like God created you. You see, he put you all in a perfect thing, and he put you in an envelope. He sealed it all up. Well, they had to unseal it and take his brain. And when they did, I said, see, this is like your brain. I fanned the cards out, ace through king, ace through king. See, it's all. I said, what happened is when they went in and they fixed it, and I shuffled the cards, Stephen's cards are out of order. And so he may look at you and call you Susie, and your name's John. It's not that he don't know you. It's because your card is in the wrong spot. And this little boy, his name was Casey, I'll never forget, sitting in the back of the classroom, goes, can I help Stephen put his cards back? They fought to see who would be able to go into the, the library at recesses and lunch to be with Stephen to help him put his cards back into the right folder. At the end of that school year, he was at grade level. He had some deficits, but he ended up winning two championships, mutton busting and roping. Then he decided, we're getting a little bit bigger, Dad. So he went to calf riding, then he went to steer riding, then he went to bull riding. And he's won six championships and 27 buckles, four saddles in, in rodeo. Then he decided, I don't want to do that no more. Great. I've invested in cattle. I've invested in 14 horses, trucks, and trailers. Ta-da! What now? Because we don't own video games, by the way. And he says, I want to wrestle. Son, you understand, my papa was a wrestler. I want to wrestle. Okay. So I went to the school. He wants to wrestle. We don't have a wrestling team. Well, you do now. What do I got to do? First wrestling team, guess what? The first year, we took three kids to state. He was one. I don't want to do this. What? Dad, they're sweaty and they touch you. <laughs> Everywhere. And he had to wrestle girls. And he was like, nope. Awesome. Now what do you want to do? I was thinking maybe martial arts. What? Well, Miss Edwards at our church has a Taekwondo studio. And she says if I would come. Through his journey, he's had six world championships. He's a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. He still has no left lobe of his brain. He's not supposed to walk. He's not supposed to talk. He's supposed to be a vegetable, y'all. And the problem that I had, everybody was angry with me. I can't believe you'll let that boy get on bulls. And my response was, 
how do I know that God didn't save him to be at the PBR saying, my name's Stephen Spears, and let me tell you what Jesus Christ did for me. You're letting him wrestle? How did I not know that he was supposed to be the first guy to go to the Olympics and say, let me tell you what, Jesus Christ standing on the podium with the gold. I live in the United States of America, but let me tell you what Jesus Christ can do for you. How did I know? You let him go. You kicking each other in the head. They're knocking. He knocked many people out. What about that? He kicked him in the head. How was I as a father to know if he wasn't supposed to be the one? Then we move. And he goes, I want to play football. What? The one thing the doctor said he'll never be able to do, play football. I took him in for a physical. And I listened very closely. And they said, has he ever had a concussion? Nope. Well, he's healthy. Let him go. I told the coach, I only want him kicking. Because of Taekwondo, he can punt a football about 60 to 70 yards. I'm like, that's all he is. He's a kicker. The opportunity for him to get cracked as a kicker is really slim. That lasted for three weeks. Then he became defensive end. Then he became defensive tackle. Then he became a linebacker. Then he got a scholarship to go play football for Fresno State. But his father got sick. And I was unable to, to walk. I, uh, the time, there was no idea of the gravity of my health. And he told the coach, I can't come. My dad's ill and, and he needs me. And then the governor of California changed the law that forced me to look for another state to live in in order to stay alive. And I ended up, of all places, Nevada. Of all places of Nevada, Pahrump. And I decided as we're coming over, we, we'd been coming to Pahrump for years because we go to front site to, to train with our firearms and stuff. And we, uh, I, I go out to think about scheduling the class while I'm moving here and there's a sign, hiring. I went, why don't you do that? You're 18. My son was the first instructor to distinguish five days in a row and was one of the youngest instructors to start at Frontside. This past Friday, my son just graduated academy and is now a correctional officer in the federal prison system. He'll be flying out next Thursday to go spend three to six months at Leavenworth Prison uh, working as a correctional officer. You see, what I was worried about 
was as a father how to raise him to be the man that God saved him to be. I thought that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Today is actually the hardest thing I've ever done. Because today, that mantle leaves me. Today, that mantle is no longer mine. I've done my job. Today, the hardest thing for me as a father to do is to look at my 21-year-old son and say, cowboy, now it's your turn. It's up to you to do the things that God has saved you for. You see, I give him a lot of grief. I give my son a lot of grief. And the reason I do is because you understand I've not been away from him. The most I've been away from him was when I was in Pahrump and my truck broke down and he had to go home and we were there five more days. Five days in the last 16 years is the longest I've been away from my son and I'm looking at three to six months of not being able to see his face to know he's okay. That's hard for me. But the hardest thing is I've raised him. And the Bible promises that if you raise them in the way they should go, they'll never depart. Here's the thing. Today, the mantle passes. Because you're a man. My best friend, my source of pride, and that doesn't end today. But as today, as my family, right here, you're my family. I'm going to ask you to do me an honor. I'm going to have my son come up here. And I want you to pray that God will take him, protect him, guide him, and let him be the man that he was saved to be. Because you're all going to be where I'm at today at some time. You may not have this long story of how God surprised, how, how God showed up, but I'm telling you right now, this little man right here on the front, God's got a call on him. God's got a call on you. God's got a call on you. Do you understand what I'm saying? God's got a reason for you. Because God doesn't do anything by accident. So where I'm at may seem super crazy, but what you've got to understand is grandmas, grandpas, you're just as important. My daddy, I'll never forget, he came out of the coma. He hadn't said a word. He was still nonverbal. And my dad told him, Stephen, if your first words are Papa, I'll give you $100. <laughs> so what happened was, my cousin Mary, we were up there for so long, she snuck in food, and she makes these death by chocolate brownies. 
Oh, thank you, Jesus, for chocolate, by the way. That and monsters, I could just, I could walk. <laughs> Here's the thing. She brought these in there, and we were all sneaking these brownies because we'd ate hospital food for months. And all of a sudden, from the bed, we heard, I want a brownie. What? And my cousin Mary said, you got to tell me who I am. Aunt Mary? And I said, oh, wait a minute. It was a Wednesday night. My daddy was preaching. My dad goes, my dad's at the pulpit. My mama said, he goes, excuse me, guys, this is my son. Something had, had to have happened. He, didn't, he knows I'm in church just a minute. He answers the phone. He just falls to his knees and starts crying as, Papa, I love you. My dad left the church that night. The Holy Spirit fell, by the way. <laughs> my dad left the church and drove, and we still have it. There's a little kangaroo with a pouch, and he come walking in with a $100 bill and a kangaroo. He's going to listen to this later and realize that it was actually brownie was the first word. <laughs> and he's not getting a refund, right? <laughs> listen, y'all, we're in a miracle. My God still does miracles. You see, I could go through the miracle of my wife where they told us, go get your affairs in order. She's not going to make it to cancers everywhere. And we're going through another little stint that that's going to be amazing. We're going to get through that in a few weeks and she's going to be all, ha ha, here we go, we're done, right? We could go through, I was, I was like uber sexy at 365 pounds and now look at me, right? I just can't stand up and show you how good it looks. But guess what? God's still in the miracle working business. If you've got somebody or you are in a situation where you need God to overtake and heal, whether it's emotional, relational, financial, spiritual, it doesn't matter. Stop looking for the healing and start searching for the healer. Understood? So would you do me a favor? Son, I want you to stand right here. Alan, if you'll get that slop and put it on his forehead up here. <laughs> Would you do me a favor as my family of God? Would you stand up, please, and put your hand towards this young man and believe with us <laughs> that God is going to keep him, protect him, guide him, and let him be a light unto all that he sees in the prison system. Father, right now, I thank you. God, I thank you for my son. I thank you for this mighty man of God that you have raised. Right now, Lord God, I pray a hedge of protection around him as he steps out, Lord God, to do what you've prepared him and trained him and shown him to do, God. I pray right now that you will be with him, undergird him, strengthen him, make his spiritual life so robust that when he walks into this place of darkness, that he will be the light that people will see. Let them see jesus christ in everything he does god right now we give him the mantle that he holds 
your promise of your miracle and he becomes what you need him to do for the kingdom of God and will give you praise in Jesus' precious name. And everybody joins together in a big amen. Amen.